0: Today on Lawyers Rising.
1: Firms of all sides are really feeling the pinch to really take action.
0: The state of the U.S. attorney market. I'm joined today by two members of the BCG Attorney's Search Team. Bree Mills is recruiting manager and Harrison Barnes is the founder and chief executive. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. So we're going to talk about the state of the U.S. legal market, and this is a product of a lot of work at BCG Attorney Search and specifically a lot of work that uh, Bree undertook. So why don't we just start there, Bree, with a little kind of top headline. What was the big takeaways from uh, this year's report? Uh,
1: yeah, so I, I do think it's a little—it's important to give a little bit of background as to why we put this report together and, and how we do it. Um, we have a lot of market data that we collect at BCG Attorney Search about the job market, about the jobs that are coming on the market, the opportunities that we're seeing um, at firms, you know, how many jobs and which practice areas and which locations are opening. Um, so we do a lot of work to kind of slice splice that data 10 different ways and give you guys some, give the readers some information about what's actually happening in, in um, you know, the the legal job market in that respect. And then we also have a lot of great information from um, just working directly with candidates who are trying to lateral from law firm to law firm, seeing what kind of candidates are getting traction, you know, which practice areas are hot, what kind of candidates are marketable, um, and all of Yeah, all of those sort of factors. So we try to distill all that information in this report. Um, And then we also kind of just review some of the larger trends of what's happening in the law firm world. Um, And so, you know, this year, for example, we saw a continuation of of a trend of just a Crazy law firm merger market, which is really consolidating a lot of firms across the country into sort of big mega firms. And and what does that mean for attorneys who are trying to lateral? What kind of opportunities are there coming on the market because of that or leaving the market because of that? Um, And then some other sort of law firm cultural shifts are happening. Um, And then we do a review of of what are just the, the top practice areas where we're seeing the most activity, where most of our candidates are getting interviews and getting offers and getting placed. Um, and then some, some trends of some niche interesting practice areas to watch in the upcoming year, like data privacy and cannabis law, and is bankruptcy coming back? Um, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's a 10,000 foot view of, of this report.
0: Well, that's a good place to start. Um, Harrison, do you want to just give us um some perspective about why you undertake this project every year? Um, it's a lot of data that you have to mine through and to come up with something um usable. Why go through the effort?
2: Well, the first thing is I think it's important for attorneys to understand uh, when they're and when they're not marketable. So I think you know a lot of attorneys make it a false sense of the marketability uh, in different regions of the country or in different practice areas, and that can be very dangerous because you know, certain practice areas, it can be very difficult to find a position if the market's not good. In uh, other practice areas, it can be, you know, and um, a lot of attorneys may find themselves in jobs where, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for them to move up to better firms or uh, to different markets and, uh, you know, to kind of understand, you know, how that affects them. You know, lots of other issues, you know, affecting uh, the ability of attorneys to move or you know, whether or not, uh, you know, their firms in a merger state, uh, which, you know, I think the report brought out, uh, attorneys diversity, uh, you know, that can have uh, an impact on their ability to move. And, uh, you know, and so all those things kind of work together and understanding your individual marketability is very important. And then for law firms, you know, another important thing is for them to understand the attorneys that they need to hold on to or applications they need to pay attention to when they're coming in because, uh, you know, there are a lot of attorneys that, uh, you know, may be very marketable that they have on staff and they need to be very, very careful uh, about, you know, what they need to do to keep them and realizing that it may not be easy to replace those attorneys. Uh, You know, other factors for law firms will be making sure that for the most competitive attorneys uh, that they're um, being, you know, uh, paying bonuses that are, uh, going to keep them around uh, that they're uh, you know hire, doing as much hiring as they can uh, the most marketable attorneys if the works there and then kind of understanding in a lot of cases you know if a certain practice area seems to be taking off nationally in a lot of other firms and it may not be happening at your firm you know what what are you doing wrong specifically uh, to not attract that type of business and so those type of observations and stuff are, are, are very important so that's Those are some of the reasons that we, um, you know, undertake it. Uh, You know, what's very interesting to me and I've always seen is, you know, you really can get a a really good insight into the economy and, and, you know, what's happening and where, you know, even if you were like, uh, you know, an investor, you know, to understand when corporate's very active, for example, it would probably be a good time to invest in the overall, you know, stock market. And when you know, corporates very slow. Maybe it's a good opportunity to invest too, because stocks will come back. But I mean, that means that you know things are are going down, and so you know, understanding business sentiment and um, you know what you know what is uh, you know happening in the in the market. Uh, is very important for for law firms and, and also for attorneys.
0: Okay, let's dig into this then, starting with something that Bree mentioned right off the top, which was law firm mergers in 2019. Bree, do you want to just pick it up from there? You mentioned that there was just crazy activity on that front. Can you kind of broaden out the picture for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, It was the most law firm mergers on record. Um, There's 115 law firm mergers, and these law firm mergers are of big firms and small firms. I mean, a lot of the activity is big firms acquiring smaller firms. Um, and so let's start with that one, which is, this is a trend that we're seeing more and more, which is a big firm, let's say over 200 attorney firm, um, starts acquiring smaller regional firms. Um, and this is a really great way for the, these firms to kind of get a foothold in a new market or to expand and deepen their expertise in a certain practice area. So for example, we saw, you know, a very specialized labor and employment firm called Fisher Phillips. They just wholesale took over, I think like a 13 person office in Detroit and they had no presence before that in Detroit. So they opened a Detroit office with that acquisition. And then they also brought on a, you know, they doubled their attorney count in Washington DC with this with the acquisition of another specialized boutique. Um, and we saw this kind of trend across the board with a lot of big firms just picking up either just very specialized niche boutiques in in markets that these firms wanted to have a better platform in. And this seems to be really the trend of, of firms easily expanding and not overextending how they're doing it. There are other huge mergers that can happen that can really um, be a market-shaking kind of merger that are much more difficult to pull off with success. You know, we saw a lot of those happen last year. It was a kind of a crazy spate of those Um, and does seem like this year, the trend, I mean, as we saw, it was like 88% of the mergers were, that happened this year were smaller firms between two and 20 attorneys. Um, And then, so we thought, you know, we were sort of not even seeing any of the huge mergers that we had seen a lot of last year in Texas until the fourth quarter. Uh, and then so then in the fourth quarter of this year we saw a lot of interesting um, activity of midwest firms, specifically based in Minneapolis joining forces. Um, and the sort of the same reasons apply to like why they are undertaking those types of mergers. I mean these middle market firms, um, really are trying to become more competitive with the huge firms that are a real national presence. And a lot of their, there are some really strong Midwest firms, but they have a very regional feel and a regional basis. And, you know, they kind of want to keep their, their clients happy by showing them that they have the depth to service any kind of legal matter that comes their way. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're seeing those sort of seem to be the trends, is just trying to grow organically into new markets and have a strong strong foothold
0: yeah I'd be really interested Harrison to hear your thoughts about what you think is powering um, these this huge activity in mergers that Bree just pointed out
2: one of the things that I, I think that a lot of people don't talk about you know when they talk about mergers is you know there's there's a couple of things that drive it I mean I think that you know attorneys inside of law firms if their law firm is not a large law firm or is not a powerful law firm with a big brand I think a lot of times that that's something that they're interested in. I mean, when I'm talking to partners inside of law firms, you know, they're always, you know, especially big partners with, you know, $5 million plus in business, you know, which I talk to kind of, you know, most days. I mean, they're always shying away from the smaller firms or the mid sized firms and, uh, and and always most interested in the bigger firms. And then, you know, and so I think the small, there's sort of like a, a sense of inferiority that comes you know, in, in terms of not working at a major brand firm, big brand firm. And so I think a lot of these firms, you know, the bigger firms are trying to get bigger brands and get more people in the, uh, the, and then the smaller firms, uh, a lot of times are very open to merging into large firms. I mean, I, I just can't believe, for a lot of times, it doesn't even make sense to me because I've, you know, I was talking to a partner in LA recently that had you know, I don't know, like a huge book of business, I mean, 10s of millions, according to him. And so, and, you know, and then he ended up merging, merging his firm into another firm. And, you know, I didn't really understand why he would do that. uh, You know, but I think it it goes back to trying to be, you know, something big and powerful. And and that's just kind of where, you know, business and and, and firms move. I mean, they want to be bigger. Um, But the thing that, um, you know, kind of disturbs me a lot of times, though, about the whole thing is, you know, when there's a lot of these mid-sized firms that end up merging into, into other firms or, uh, you know, and becoming big firms, the, the attorneys in, in those firms, a lot of times, are very happy. I mean, they may not be making as much money as in large firms, but when they get into large firms, large firms tend to have, you know, uh, very strong management and uh, ways of compensating partners and uh, big bureaucracies that operate. And, you know, a lot of times when these mid-sized firms get in there, the people aren't comfortable with that and uh, and they end up leaving and um, the culture of the smaller firm is destroyed. And it's not always uh, a good thing when these mergers happen. Uh, you know, one of the big things that happened in, uh, you know, like starting in the, you know, the two, well, even the late 1990s, but really kind of through the 2000s, like, you know, 2000 to, you know, to at least 2010, there was this whole... Thing where all these large firms felt like they needed to have intellectual property practices, so all these firms that had, uh, you know, very strong intellectual property practices, doing patent prosecution in some cases, uh, you know, patent litigation and so forth, all over the country, uh, ended up getting absorbed by these larger firms, and then the larger firms decided, oh, we don't like patent prosecution anymore because it's becoming like a commodity. So then all these people kind of got discarded, and then. And they ended up having to leave their, you know, leave the firms or lost their jobs or, you know, so it's just, it's not always, all these mergers and stuff are not necessarily uh, always the best thing. Uh, People think they're good for clients, but, you know, in some cases, a lot of these, you know, smaller to mid-sized firms have been around 100 plus years. And then, you know, getting absorbed by a larger firm isn't always uh, in their best interest. So to that point,
0: Brie, I wonder if you could comment on what this merger activity has meant for the hiring market in general. Has it been a good thing for, um, you know, new lawyers in the in the marketplace?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a little hard to make grand observations about, but I I was sort of looking at this from a lot of different angles. And one thing that I actually talked to my recruiters about with these small firm acquisitions is I I actually got a story um, from one of my recruiters who she actually placed a candidate. At um, a bigger firm who had just absorbed a smaller firm, that partner from the smaller firm that was absorbed actually had a lot of work, and they didn't really have any associates. These smaller firms are often very partner-heavy, and they don't have a lot of associates. Um, you know, for for various reasons, potentially par- partially, it's just sort of like the economies of scale. They don't have the you know, it's a little bit more directly coming out of that partner's pocket. If you bring on associates, whereas you come to a bigger um, platform, you have a little bit more. Infrastructure and and budget to bring on and recruit and train these these new um, associates. So you know we had an, a literal opportunity that would not have otherwise existed without this merger. So potentially some of these smaller firms that are getting absorbed is actually opening up some work for associates to to find you know the. They have there's work that needs to be serviced. And sometimes what happens with these smaller firms too is that they might have had a very sort of specialized niche where they were doing one very specific type of law and they didn't have the breadth of expertise to take on sort of the spinoff work that comes, right? So if you're doing, you know, a real estate deal, some of the tax implications that come out of that, or, you know, if you're doing some corporate law, then maybe there's some ERISA work, or I mean, or some litigation that spins out of it. I mean, it just as you get a client, you know, you want to be able to sort of service all of their needs of the work that kind of spins off from the work that you're helping them with, and these smaller firms don't necessarily have that. Um, ability when they are so so specialized. So when they join a bigger firm, they can actually potentially get even more work from that client. That work trickles down throughout the entire firm, creating more work for everybody in the firm and potentially creating more need to actually hire people to service those those new matters. Um, So I think there could be a decent opportunity for, you know, associate hiring at these uh, at at the firms that have just acquired some of these smaller firms, so I think that's something to look out for. Um, the big the bigger mergers, um, you know, I th- I looked very closely, kind of trying to get a sense of like how often do people kind of get laid off when the, the, those types of big mergers happen? When you know a four hundred person firm merges with like a three hundred person firm, is there a lot of redundancy? Is that a bad thing for the people who are coming into that bigger firm? Um, and it. Largely seems like that's the the attorneys themselves often are not in danger of getting laid off. Sometimes the legal support staff can be or other kind of legal staff that that are more in a support role. Um, But the attorneys don't. But I think what does end up happening is kind of what Harrison was talking about. It's just it's such a huge culture change you know you you were at what was maybe a th- you know a big firm but not a behemoth firm and you had there was a certain firm culture and a certain way of doing things and now you're part of this huge machine um, and there can be a lot of unhappy attorneys who don't really feel that great about this new organizational culture they might be scared of the increased in potential workload or job stress maybe you're not sure maybe you you haven't been laid off but you know, maybe there isn't really that much work for absolutely everybody. And so there could be a little bit of stress. (laughs) The other side of too much stress is maybe not too much work is not enough work. So those attorneys do end up leaving often. And we do, I have seen some, some sort of numbers on, you know, the number of attorneys who the the kind of an increased attrition rate at these big firms after some of these big mergers, because it's just not, you know, where that attorney wanted to be. I mean, you make a very, reasoned and sober decision about where you want to work, and then completely out of your control, you're thrust into a firm that you never really agreed to, you know, you never really necessarily wanted to work with. So a lot of these attorneys end up leaving, or they even potentially leave, quit, you know, without a job lined up, or quit without, um, you know, never even wanting to be an attorney again. So, you know, I think you're going to see some movement in the lateral market, and if, if, you know, something in a place where there's, you know, a lot of competition all of a sudden, maybe where like a lot of these firms are merging and people are leaving firms, there could be a glut of associates on the market all of a sudden looking for, for opportunities. So, you know, could it could kind of increase in the short term competition. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, there's just one less firm to work for. So, <laughs> there's, there just becomes, you know, fewer options in the marketplace. So, I think you will see a fair amount of kind of moving around after, you know, especially something like that's happened this year with just a huge amount of activity in, in a very small market like Minneapolis. Um that could really kind of upend the the lateral market for a little bit and we'll be interesting to sort of see how that shakes out since a lot of these mergers just happened, you know, at the very end of last year. So we'll be watching that space closely and kind of see see what happens um with the fallout from that.
2: Yeah, just one thing I wanted to add to sort of everything that Brie was saying is, you know, when when there's, there's a couple of things that happen with mergers. I mean, but one of the main things that happens is a lot of times with medium sized firms or even smaller law firms, there's, there's kind of all these inefficiencies in them. So they're not really, I mean, they're being run by like businesses, but they're not being run like sophisticated businesses. So there may be, they may be very top heavy uh, you know, people may be getting paid more than they should, or uh, you know, they, they may have issues with collections or it just, you know, all sorts of issues may be happening you know that that won't necessarily happen in a law firm. So a larger firm. So one thing that's sort of happening when these larger firms are absorbing smaller firms is they're kind of bringing you know more efficiency to the to the operations. And so they're they're bringing in these attorneys and then they're imposing lots of business metrics and things that may not have existed before. And that forces out people that may not be as productive. So it's kind of like the you know the whole role of creative. You know, destruction and uh, you know, rebirth. I mean, it's it's making the market more efficient when these mergers happen. I think, but at the same time, what's happening is a lot of the the smaller to mid sized firms they have they have cultures and things that have developed and that people like and that they're comfortable with. And uh, ultimately, you know, when the firm gets larger and uh, and it absorbs that that culture tends to be um, you know gotten rid of, and there doesn't tend to be you know, in many cases, when a when a larger firm absorbs a smaller firm, there's not, you know, as much cooperation uh, between people. the the acquired the acquired firm, the attorneys there will hold on to their work in a lot of cases, and uh, and not share it with the attorneys in the new firm. And the same thing with the the attorneys in the in the you know existing firm that acquired them. A lot of times, will hold on to work. So there's just there there are drawbacks to the whole thing that a lot of times when a firm is merging, that they don't see. And, um, and there's also just, you know, the, the, the possibility for some, you know, very bad, um, you know, decision making. And one of the ish- interesting uh, mergers, I mean, it's not a, it's not, the, you know, but it's the Dewey-LaBeouf merger, you know, where they were just so hungry for, you know, to, to be like a major player and, uh, and have respect in the market and everything that they came in and they, you know, took out these huge lines of credit and uh, overpaid partners and guaranteed people compensation, and it was all just kind of for show, and it ended up killing a you know the the main firm Dewey LeBluff, the Dewey that was, you know, well over you know very old, uh, respected Wall Street firm. So there's just a lot of things going on when a merger is happening, and it, um you know sometimes it can create job opportunities, but in the in most cases, what it does is it makes the people in the acquired firm more efficient and. Uh, and push intends to push them out and uh, the, the least efficient people.
0: Well, to that point about the culture inside of law firms, um, you know, a big part of that is, is who are the people in the law firms. And there's been talk in the corporate world and a focus in the corporate world for some time about increasing diversity. The legal world has been somewhat more resistant to those larger trends, but Brie, you've been looking into this and the story might be changing a little bit in 2019 into 2020 when it comes to the diversity front. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So... Uh, What happened in 2019 was a rather unfortunate announcement by a pretty major firm of their new partner class, which they thought was, you know, this is going to be great. We want to give kudos to these, all of our newly made partners. Um, And they did a whole kind of photo lineup of everybody who had been made partner. And it was uh, basically 11 white men and one white woman. Um, And that, that ended up being rather a galvanizing image. I mean, always a bit more punch when you have an image image to kind of rally behind so <clears throat> one particular general counsel of, of a big company decided to pen an open letter and really took this firm to task and any all these other firms who are really not um, you know sticking to basically they're, they're really not giving the opportunities that they should be to the diverse um, attorneys in their firms they're really not uh, making partner of the attorneys that are coming in. Like oftentimes the associate class is rather diverse and they do a decent job of getting a diversity of associates. And then as it goes up the ranks to partner, all of a sudden the percentage of attorneys who are diverse or women just plummets. Um, So they really thought, okay, let's, it's time to really take a stance here and, um, and make it, make the point that, you know, we're not going to spend our legal budget on, at your firm, unless you make some real changes. So trying to put a little bit of actual punch behind the, the requests that these firms actually staff matters in a diverse way, that they hire diverse people, that they advance diverse attorneys. So we've seen this happen in the past, um, but it seems this year was a it felt a little bit different because there was such publicity surrounding this letter and this particular issue with this firm. And it for us, from our perspective, working with firms, we started to feel the difference from the firm side. So these clients were actually demanding with real dollars and cents that you have a diverse cadre of attorneys. And so firms came to us specifically citing directives from their clients that they hire diverse people. I mean, we almost had like a desperate plea from a lot of firms that they, that they need women, they need, um, diverse attorneys. And you know, it's a lot of firms like potentially IP firms, IP firms tend to be very, they have a lot of white males and and other kinds of these small firms. So th- this is not even just affecting the top firms. I mean, uh, firms of all size are really feeling the pinch to really take action on this.
0: Um, is there enough people to service those positions um, when it comes to um, people uh, of other races um, and women, etc.? cetera? Um, you mentioned that there's kind of a desperation out there to try and fill um, those slots. Um, are there enough people to go around?
1: Well, there are certainly enough women. Um, and I think, you know, we'll talk about next and sort of you know, parental leave policies kind of has an effect on this because a lot of women do sort of prematurely leave the legal workforce. And that is a big problem that I think is also potentially trying to be addressed by some cultural changes inside law firms. So, you know, to that end, you know, I think firms need to be, we actually saw a few firms coming to us who understood the incredible waste of talent that was happening because these firms are just not able to be flexible with how they're they're doing out work and having a real opportunity to do sort of part-time work. I mean, there's just a lot of incredibly smart women that are just not working because they can't, it's like an all or nothing thing at some of these firms where either I'm billing 2,400 hours or, you know, I'm not getting any work because I'm on the quote-unquote mommy track. So, yes, there there are women for sure. Um, The diversity, the sort of racially diverse candidates is probably – a bit more of a problem, um, you know. We work a lot with with diverse candidates who do feel like they're not getting the kind of support that they need. So I think diver- the the diverse candidates that there are do tend to leave. So I think that's that's really the point of the letter is like whether or not we can have you know fit, like one of a, a rainbow of people and everybody you know super diverse staffing. I think the issue is more that you bring in a you know that's, let's say, what is it? Um, so like your, the associate class from the data that we have available from, uh, through NELP says that the associate classes at some of these firms is about 25% non-white. And then by the time you get to partner level, it's 10%. So where is that drop-off coming from? I think that is really the thing that the these general counsel want to the firms to address what is happening what are you not doing for your diverse candidates that is causing them to leave causing them not to be able to advance in the way that um that they should be Uh, that's you know of course there's always going to be a drop off from partner to from associates, partner level, but it's it's rather a steep drop off. Um, and I think from what we've we've learned from talking to diverse candidates is it's really a lack of mentorship, it's a lack of support, it's uh, so there's some sort of endemic problems that I think is really what we're trying to get at. It's not just sort of advancing people for advancing sake, but how can we how can we fix this problem of just seeing all these people kind of drop out of out of the law firm game?
0: Harrison, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. We've spoken in the past about kind of the nature of firms and the fact that they're often quite clicky. They might contain people from a certain uh, school background or maybe religious background, et cetera. So that's very much coming in conflict with this increased call for more diverse um cadre of lawyers, as as Bree pointed out. So can, a, there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on there. What are your thoughts?
2: Wow, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I mean, I've you know, I've read a written a book about uh law firm diversity and uh you know written a lot about it. I think that I mean there's there's just there's there's an awful lot going on. I mean, there's there's problems with uh you know mentoring in firms, you know, in terms of the way firms mentor, so it's not it's not even, you know, law firms hire people from diverse backgrounds all the time, but then they, you know, then they don't have the ability to create an atmosphere where they succeed. So it's not just enough to get hired, um, you know, you, you know, you need to have uh, an atmosphere uh, where they could, they they can succeed and get the same sort of mentoring and um, and access to business and and so forth that uh, other people inside the firm have. Uh, you know, the, the problem with a with the law firm, I'm not saying necessarily a problem, but, you know, relationships form and alliances form. And a lot of times those those relationships and alliances form among people that um, have come out of similar backgrounds, meaning a lot of times that means they're they're a similar race. So there's just a lot of things going on in society that 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 make diversity difficult because law firms ask for diversity. Um, and, you know, in-house counsel asks for diversity, but then when they do get diversity, uh, it ends up being something that kind of backfires because then people complain that they're not integrated well enough, which is true. So, uh, so there's just, you know, there's, there's a lot of issues with how um, society is making changes. And I think the changes that need to be made in society to, to make different groups feel diverse are long-term and uh, there are things that, Need to happen over a long period of time. You know, the the other issue is just the the lack of training and mentorship, and a lot of these assumptions. Like one of the things that um, happens to um, a, a lot of uh, you know people from different backgrounds is, you know, when they get into of law firms, if they make a couple of mistakes early on. Uh, with something, um, then a lot of times they're just not given more work, you know. Whereas, you know, someone that comes out of a similar background to, from the attorney, uh, the partner, whoever's assigning the work, will just give them, uh, you know, will sit them down and talk to them, or they may, uh, you know, go to lunch with peers, and the peers will tell them, you know, give them advice about how to do certain types of work, and uh, you know, and so, and and if they don't have that, you know, sort of support, then that then that can be very harmful. So. There's, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on. It's not just, you know, like I said, it's not just bringing people in. It's it's cultivating them and, and making them feel, uh, you know, welcome and, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, it's
0: interesting because I think what both of you are hinting at here is that there is um, – It's not as simple as simply just hiring the bodies that you kind of have to have the underlying infrastructure there to support those people moving through the institution um, from that track, from from associate to partner. And Bree, I'd like to talk about um, part of that infrastructure, part of the policies that need to be in place to make it easier for People from diverse backgrounds, and and part of that, um, at least for hiring women, has to come with you know parental leave policies, and and indeed not just women, because increasingly there's there's gender, gender neutral parental leave policies out there as well. Can you speak to that about that kind of bringing in those policies to try and uh, rectify these problems of diversity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I this was a sort of a trend that kind of started at the end of 2018 with some big firms, and just a lot more firms jumped on board. Um, in 2019, which was huge announcements that hey guys, we're going to give you you know anywhere between four and six more weeks than we we're already giving you, bringing you know your total parental leave policy or uh, parental leave to 12 to 22 weeks. There's no more caregiver status distinction. So moms and dads, we don't care if you're the primary or secondary caregiver. You can take the entire leave um, and. By the way, birth mothers, we can also give you another six eight weeks of fully paid time off. Um, so th- this is this is kind of coming with, you know, on the heels of a lot of. Um, you know, basically so sorry. So other companies have been really leading the way in the tech industry in particular has been leading the way in this and understanding the importance of this and not downplaying you know understanding that it's important to have a family and to take that time to take that leave. Um, and law firms have been notoriously punitive when you do end up taking that leave. So I think all of this activity towards these gender neutral policies, giving more time off is really in response to that. And as sort of a play to get more of the top talent. I mean, this is part of the talent war. You know, I mean, last year we talked about the salary increases and that was a huge ploy to, you know, basically all the big firms are competing for the top talent. So we all have to out Bid each other on on that talent, and so we just escalated all that up. So, to me, this 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 was sort of this year, you know, cause du jour um, to be paying lip service to some sort of perks and benefits you get from coming to work at our firm. Hey, we really respect you as a parent. Come over here, look at this fancy parental leave we have, and it's long overdue, and it's incredibly necessary. And there are still some firms out there that are <laughs> laughable. Like there's a particular firm I'm thinking of, I won't name names, that literally gives fathers three days of parental leave. (laughs) So it's definitely a a long overdue um, change. So I think this is really recognizing that women need to feel like they can take this type of leave and come back and still be a valued member of the firm. So while this is a great first step, that realizing, you know, we're not going to treat you as slaves and you need to go and have bonding time with your family. Um, You know, what I think is the bigger question is, will this actually be a cultural shift? Because a lot of women have experienced incredibly negative consequences when they actually do try to take advantage of the leave that's offered. I mean, I was at a firm that had Pretty generous leave. It was already, I think, in the twelve week or maybe even sixteen week um, mark, which was you know more than a lot of the other firms did at the time. Um, but the question really is, if you actually go and take four months off, where you're just becoming a cost center to the firm, you're not billing. They're still paying you their full salary. You're out of sight, out of mind. You come back, your matters have been taken over. You have lost a relationship with the partner because you've just been gone. Um, can you really reintegrate and get back on track or are you going to be on what I had referenced before this quote-unquote mommy track um, and this that track is you're just you're going to get over for partner your per- career prospects are going to become very limited and so that's always been the issue so a great we're getting we're going to actually change our policies to on the surface give you more time now is that really going to result in the kind of cultural shift that that really is necessary to to make that palatable to the people who actually want to take advantage of it. But all that said, what I think is interesting about these new changes is in particular the lack of caregiver status distinction. So now, if men are allowed to take the same amount of time off as women or whatever it is secondary caregiver, it could be you know in in whatever kind of family unit you have, um the if I do think if men are finally able to take that same amount of leave and they start taking it, I hate to say it, but that really could be the tipping point when it's now it's men who are doing that as well as women. And it's becoming a bit more of an equal footing. Um, I mean, it's, it kind of reminds me of this big case that that, um, Justice Ginsburg argued early in her career. It was the near beer case which basically she was fighting for gender equality, but the case that she took to the Supreme Court was a case in which men were discriminated against because they were, I think they were not allowed to drink this, or they had to have near beer, which is like a lower percentage of alcohol. I forget the exact details, but the, point, the overall point was she was so brilliant to think like, actually we need to show how men are being discriminated against in order to bring the fight to equal footing. So, I'm kind of wondering if that's if that's what we will start seeing with this kind of gender-neutral policy, because um, honestly, men today are are becoming more and more. I can't tell you how many of my friends are like, the dad wants to be the stay-at-home parent, or the, there there just is a lot more move towards really sharing parenting duties, having that be a real partnership, and not having. I mean, it, it's in keeping with the times. Like, there really isn't a primary caregiver distinction as. As, as much anymore, potentially, especially with people sort of my generation. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's one of the more interesting changes that's, that's happening, and I'll be very curious to see how this actually plays out. Um, and and one of, one of the things that I think is important, talking about the infrastructure of the firm and whether or not they are kind of set up to support you is, you know, do you have – are you at a firm where you actually have an example of somebody who – took this time off and came back and became partner. Um, So one firm I know of like is Munger Tolls, you know, they have, from sort of some reports I was reading, they have a very supportive company culture about parental leave. They have numerous female partners who did take their full due uh, parental leave and came back and became partners. So, you know, can they really walk the walk when it comes to this? so I think a lot of these firms are probably paying lip service to this idea. So we should we should definitely watch this this arena and see see how that ends up playing out.
2: But in terms of Munger Tolleso, I mean that's a you know most of the women there. I mean they're they're you know probably first, second, or third in their class from top law schools. I mean you know Supreme Court clerks and um, that sort of thing. So I mean that's I mean I think that's a good example of a firm. But the the type of people that they're allowing to do that. Um, you know, would be marketable anywhere in the world. I mean, they're they're the, the most mar- <laughs> most marketable attorneys imaginable. The um, but what another thing I want to bring up too that that's interesting, and it's the same thing, you know, like with with these uh, you know, gender neutral parental leave policies. I mean, um, I talk to men all the time that take these things, and then you know what happens is they come back and no one gives them work, you know, and um, you know, so it's you know, it's, it's not, you know, I don't know that, um, you know, it's, it's always, uh, the best thing, uh, you know, to talk about these, um, I mean, these leave policies are, are good things, but uh, and a lot of times, you know, the, when the men take them, I think there's, there still is a cultural bias in a lot of firms against those, you know, so not every firm is, a. Uh, even though they'll, they'll say they have the parental leave policies, they won't, um, the people that take them will, will will really suffer when they come back.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that is very true. And we've I've heard examples of um, attorneys, male attorneys, who have simply left their firm because they had to be approved for parental leave, and they were not approved. And they're like, well, no, I mean, no, I'm I'm going to take time to be with my new baby and they leave so i mean i think the point is it's we'll see i think absolutely you're right here and the whole point is like the firm culture is still very biased against you actually taking this leave and coming back and giving you you know kind of letting you come back in midstream and be where you were um but my hope is that that will change and I'm curious to see if, you know, if more and more firms kind of go this way and more and more people actually start taking advantage of it, if there becomes just a tipping point where there's a just, they can't ice everybody out because, you know, everybody's becoming a parent and taking their time off and you're, you should be allowed to. So I, I'm not overly optimistic that this is going to be some sort of amazing change in the law firm culture and you can take your leave and come back and everything's fine, but it's, it's an interesting trend. And I think over time we'll, we'll get there. Maybe we'll see.
2: (laughs) One example that I wanted to bring up though, that I thought was kind of, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny actually, but it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, you know, raises sort of the dangers of it. There's a, um, I mean, I don't know if she's still in the market, but there was a, there was a girl in New York that, um, she had, she got pregnant when she was in law school. So she started work. You know, a year later, you know, guess in the parental leave like after the first years. But then when she started work, she was pregnant again. You know, so she only worked for a couple of months, and she she kept this thing going like seven years, and um, you know probably worked less than a year the whole time getting a full uh, salary. And and and, I, and and it's a real story. You know, so um, I you know there there are some you know from a, from a law firm's perspective if you think about that like if you have someone that spends seven years getting pregnant and having babies and having all these babies and never works, I mean, obviously the woman's hurting her career, but that's a lot of money, you know, to, um, to make. And it's, you know, and, and, and a law firm does have to be efficient and that's kind of an extreme example. And I guess everybody, um, you know, kind of supports it, but, you know, uh, but, but it's, it's an extreme example. And I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, are something like that. And is that, is that is it correct for, you know, for um, a law firm to be put in that position?
1: No, I mean I, I I addressed that earlier. I think that the business dynamics of it are very clear. I mean, you become a complete cost center. You're getting your full salary, and you're not doing any work of value for the firm. So it's really not hard to understand why this becomes the reality. Um, But at the same time, you know, countries all over the world are finding ways to make this work. And I mean, you really shouldn't have to choose between being a parent and being having a career. Um, And and maybe that's a pipe dream. And maybe I got my heads in the cloud. But I I think I'm closer to a generation of I mean, I'm 34. Uh, You know, I'm a little bit I think the people coming behind me are going to be even more insistent on this. Although to be fair, actually, even, even in Norway, where you can get up to a year, I think the men are still not taking that much leave. So it's, it's definitely a, it's a tough (laughs) road to hoe, but, um, you know, I, I think you can, at the very least, when you come back, you should be, Able to come back and be integrated. I mean, you shouldn't be so penalized for having taken the time off, as though that's some sort of like, oh, well, you're not that committed because you wanted to go be a mom for three months. You know, I think that's more of the issue is that you come back and you don't have a mentor to get you back on track, or maybe you come back and you want to do some part time work and move back into the full full force of it. So, um, you know, I you shouldn't be penalized because the firm had to pay you for time taking time off. Obviously that woman who was getting seven years of a free ride is, is an extreme example. And that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I <laughs> I'm, I'm at the age where like, this is something of in my mind. And you know, when you think about, you know, what the realities are, it, just, it becomes a scary prospect to like, Oh, if I have a child, you know, what does that mean for me? And that's, a, that stinks. That stinks that you have to, <laughs> like, you know, I end up putting off longer and longer having a kid because you don't want to. Um you know, lose where you are in the workplace.
0: Yeah, you know, and at the risk of uh, belaboring this point, because there is so much, and I find it so interesting, I wonder if I can just interject a little bit, if part of this issue is the fact that in the United States, a lot of this is on uh, employers to figure out, uh, kind of on an ad hoc basis, a case-by-case basis, rather than at uh, a state or a federal level, as it is in most other countries, where there's parental leave policies that are legislated and kind of mandated. So it doesn't really matter what the employer wants to do, they're kind of legally bound. To do it, um, I don't see that changing the United States anytime uh, soon. But it is an interesting thing to note. That's kind of uh, adding to this issue, I think.
2: Well, and it's also, I mean, one one of the things that's going on is it's it's just all these are you know everything in society and between countries and individuals and stuff is you know it's if you just look at what's going on in the U.S. political system all the time, it's a struggle between. You know liberal values and conservative values and you know and uh, you know so that that plays itself out in the workplace and ultimately you know the what's gonna what wins is what what society you know what what society wants and so you know it doesn't really matter um you know what the law firm wants it, it matters ultimately what uh, the people wants the, the people want but the problem is you know with the with the legal profession uh, you know because everything's based on billable hours you know, it's like this woman that, you know, took years having babies and continue to get paid, you know, the only way for a law firm to make money is if people are billing as many hours as possible. So, you know, there are certain professions, you know, that are are, are riskier than others to, to go into if if you do want, want to have a, a family or you do want to spend time with a family. I mean, one of the reasons I left the practice of law was I, you know, I, I just, it's just crazy. I mean, if you want to be in the office all the time, I mean, i I personally value, you know, my free time out of the office and I like to, you know, spend time with my, my family and, and people close to me and uh, I like to exercise and, you know, I don't, you know, I like to work, but I, I certainly don't want to have to work, um, you know, 60 hours a week uh, in order to get ahead. So you, you just kind of have to decide, you know, all these values can integrate themselves in a the law firm, but ultimately the people that are going to get ahead are going to be the people that produce the most money for the, for the law firm. And that's part of the problem, the way the system works and maybe there needs to be systematic changes, but there's also lots of other practice settings where attorneys can go, which is like in-house or academics or, you know, if, if that doesn't work for them, because it, it's definitely, the law firm environment, you know, even though they're making changes, it doesn't always work. So just allowing a man to take his mandatory three weeks uh, of, um, Paternity leave, or you know, that he's entitled to, then he finds he comes back and doesn't have. No one will give him work to do because they think he's a, you know, a wuss.
1: No, it's it's true, and that's definitely something attorneys should be aware of. But I think there are some. It may be right. Like maybe it's a practice setting thing. Maybe this just really is not going to change at any fast pace at any of these big firms, despite these leave policies. Um, and, but you know, we have talked to a small growing firm that is actively looking for smart female attorneys who left big law because they became a mom. You know, they, there's an understanding in some of the value of those people and that are really willing to give them a literal 20-hour kind of a week, you know, remote position because they're smart and they have they're good writers and they have value. Um, So maybe that will kind of be what the trend is moving a little bit more towards us, you know, and these, the people who started this firm are just a dynamo group of like fourth year associates that have this huge firm that they're starting in Florida, New York. I mean, it's kind of insane, but they, they're, you know, top of their class from a big firm that moved, moved onto to their own practice. So, you know, maybe, maybe that will be where that grassroots trend starts more um, and there'll maybe be enough of a drain from the big firms of, of smart people realizing that, oh, well, there's somebody who is willing to give me this leeway and work with me and understand my value, even though I can't dedicate 60 hours a week. So anyway, I there's uh, there's a lot of different directions this can go, and I think it'll be a slow road to home. And I think you're right, Harrison, this particular practice, law, the practice of law, more so than other types of corporate environments might be, there is a reason that that, that might be even more difficult Um pill to swallow for the firms.
2: Well, and then just one final thing, and then I realize we've been talking about this forever, but it is an important point to people. I mean, is that, um, you know, if, if you want to practice law, I mean, your job is to, you know, protect the, the life and livelihood of, of other companies and people. And, uh, and, and, you know, and that means that, uh, you know, papers and things are going to be filed that are an emergency that need to be responded to right away. That means that it's important to have, For clients to have continuity of representation where there's people always around that are understanding um, their issues. And I mean, you're, you know, the the profession of law is taking people's um, businesses and lives uh, under your direction. And you can control the fate of companies and all sorts of things based on how effective and available you are. So, you know, once you choose to become an attorney and practice with a large law firm and represent a certain caliber of client. I mean, you know, you're kind of expected to, you know, sublimate a lot of your own interest uh, in pursuit of that. And that's just the way it is. I mean, it's not, you know, you can't you can't be a doctor and say, you know, representing and the only person that knows about a patient and decide that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, your personal life's more important, you're gonna let the person die. I mean, that's just insane. So it's just it's it's the way the the profession is and it's it's just what um, is expected. And there's nothing really, um, to say other than that. And that's one of the reasons, you know, the culture of these firms, I mean, the firm you're mentioning with the five days of parental leave or whatever for men, I mean, is a, uh, is, is, a, you know, in terms of it's, it's the top of its game, it's the very, very best at what it does. And so, you know, and, um, they have their, their clients have certain demands and certain standards. And, um, it's certainly a game that I wasn't interested in playing, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that you can't, you know, that you can't do it. And and if, and if you, you know, and if, and if men want to, you know, um, you know, not, you know, it's just, just, you know, it's, it's the way people think. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know what to say. And, and, you know, men for thousands of years, I mean, there have been, you know, I mean, the idea of a man taking parental leave now, I mean, if you told someone that 20 years ago, I mean, when I heard that the first time, even Uh, you know, five or 10 years ago, I started laughing. I couldn't believe it even existed. You know, so it's just the way that, you know, men have been programmed and you you can't make these changes overnight.
0: That's all the time we have for this edition of the show. If you're an attorney looking for a change, go to bcgsearch.com.